The Last Supper by Leonardo da Vinci. It's probably one of the most admired pieces of art in the world. Jesus sitting there in the middle of a long table, disciples either side. It's said to be worth about half a billion dollars, but it's never ever been sold, so who would really know? It's such an iconic piece of art that its value really is immeasurable. But it hasn't always been thought of like that. The Last Supper was originally painted by Leonardo da Vinci as a mural on the wall in a dining room of a monastery. Because the wall had been so badly built, the painting began to crumble almost immediately it had been finished. At one point it became so unrecognisable that workmen doing renovations at the monastery actually cut a hole through the wall for a door right where Jesus' feet were. And then over time, the room stopped being used as a dining room and it became an animal stable, a storage room, a prison and a barracks. Which is sort of interesting to visualise. A bunch of cows, hay all over the floor, standing in a room with one of the greatest pictures in history on the wall. And then to add insult to injury, when they finally decided to do a bit of restoration, some of the work was so sloppy that one artist even gave the Apostle James six fingers on one hand. All in all, the art world now mourns that such a treasure could be so neglected, so undervalued and so poorly treated. Here's the thing. If it's a tragedy to treat a picture of Jesus like that, how much worse is it to treat Jesus himself like that? Which is exactly what the world does. And it's what you and I used to do as well. Before God lovingly stepped in and helped us to see the immeasurable value of Jesus. And that's pretty much what this morning's passage is all about. These verses describe to us how the world does not value Jesus. And actually neither did you or I until God changed us. And that's a really good explanation to hear because it shapes the way we should be treating the other people in this room. Let's discover how by teasing out the three main progressions of thought that Paul has in this morning's passage. The three main movements to these verses. The first being that the gospel, the news about Jesus, the message of the cross, it's a hidden wisdom of God's. Verse 6. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. Now, within the context of 1 Corinthians, these are verses flowing directly out of what we discovered last week in chapter 1. Paul is addressing a problem of divisiveness within the Corinthian church. Remember that? People in Corinth, they're getting all hung up about human cleverness and eloquence and styles of ministry, 
I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas. And last week Paul pointed out that it's silly getting worked up all over that sort of stuff because it's not the cleverness of the messenger that matters most. It's actually the content of the message. That's what God uses to save people. It's the message of the cross, which is the power of God, even if the world thinks that that message is foolish. And so Paul's starting point this morning is that despite the gospel being thought of as foolishness by the world, there is still wisdom in the message. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, Paul says in verse 6. It's just that this is the sort of wisdom that the world does not get excited over. Our world gets excited about intellect and and mental capacity and how well you do at exams and how many initials you can put after your name and how many certificates you can hang on your wall. Verse 6, 7 says, however, that that sort of wisdom will in the long term come to nothing. In other words, that sort of wisdom might have a place. Look, it might help us to some extent in this life, no doubt, but it does nothing to set us up for eternal life. And therefore, the news about Jesus contains a different sort of wisdom, which the world doesn't value, a wisdom which verse 7 describes as a secret wisdom. The NIV puts it a mystery that has been hidden by God. And it's important to be clear about what it means that the gospel is hidden by God. Because it's not saying that the news about Jesus is hidden in the sense that we don't have the intellectual capacity to follow the argument. It's not saying that. Because the gospel is actually a very straightforward message, isn't it? It's the message that despite our failings and imperfections, God loves us so much, he sent his son into our world to save us. That is a very simple message to follow. And so when verse 7 says that it's a hidden message, it means that its preciousness is hidden. And that left to ourselves, we don't cherish the message of Jesus, we don't regard the news about Jesus nearly as highly as we ought to. And so the world hears the gospel, the world understands the message okay, but the world simply dismisses the message as stupid because the world doesn't value Jesus. And you only need to look at the cross to see that because when God's own son stepped foot on the earth, What did we do to him? None of the rulers of this age understood it. Verse 8. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Evidently, when Dick Lucas first went to be a rector at a church in London, some of you may have heard of Dick Lucas, maybe you've read some of his books, maybe you've heard him speak at certain conferences here in Australia or heard him online, But when he first went to St Helens in London, Dick Lucas was invited to speak at a big Easter festival that was held each year in central London. And as the festival approached, the organisers asked Dick for a catchy little title for their advertising leaflets. Dick Lucas thought about it for a few days and then he rang them back with the title, When Given Half a Chance, Man's First Inclination, When They Finally Meet God is to kill him. I think it was quite as short and snappy as they were hoping for, but it's a pretty good title for Easter. When given half a chance, 
man's first inclination when they finally meet God is to kill him. That's exactly Paul's point in verse 8. That if you ever wanted evidence of how spiritually blind humanity is and therefore how hidden the value of the things of, God's are, things of God are to us, you need only to see that we crucify the Lord of glory. Which is all a little depressing so far. We're in a bit of a mess here because there is a wisdom of God out there. We can intellectually follow it. We all have all the information we need to know about it. But it's nevertheless a hidden wisdom to us in the sense that we just don't appreciate it. But a ray of light is about to shine out of the passage. For the hidden wisdom of God has been revealed. And that's the second main movement of today's passage. And a point which Paul introduces by quoting from the Old Testament book of Isaiah, verse 9. However, as it is written, no eye has seen what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived. The things God has prepared for those who love him, these are things God has revealed to us. Now, I'm just stopping mid-sentence there. The verse goes on to mention the spirit who we will get to in a moment. But before we do, can we just pause and appreciate the incredible ramifications of that simple point that to those who love him, God reveals his hidden wisdom of the gospel. Think of the implications of that one simple point in the context of Corinthians. Because remember, this is a church where divisions are occurring over human wisdom and ministry style and cleverness of speech. And in the previous chapter, Paul's already given a few reasons why that's so silly, but now he's given even more reason. Because intelligence or cleverness or eloquence aren't really what convince us of the gospel. So there's no point in arguing and boasting about those sorts of things, because ultimately it's God who convicts us of the worth of Jesus. He reveals it to us. I mean, imagine playing hide and seek and the person hides. And so you then spend ages working out all these theories about where they are and you put together a psychological profile of the person so you can figure out where they're most likely to be hiding and you come up with all these clever strategies. You might even come up with a mathematical formula of where they be hiding. But the bottom line is that when you start to look for them, you can't find them. And so eventually what needs to happen is that they need to reveal themselves. Well, there's no point in boasting about all these wonderfully sophisticated uh, calculations that you ca they didn't work. It took the person to reveal themselves. Paul's saying that's what it's like with us and appreciating the value of the gospel and the things of God. We can meditate, we can philosophize about God as much as we want, but such is our spiritual blindness that we will not value the things of God until he reveals it to us. Such is our blindness that we just don't see the preciousness of the gospel when it's staring us in the face. It takes God to reveal it to us. And how does he do that? Well, that is exactly where God's spirit comes into his own. And the final movement in today's passage. Verse 10. These are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. 
The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thought except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now Paul is making a bit of a parallel between getting to know God and getting to know each other. And the only way we get to know each other is for us to tell things about ourselves. That's why we have icebreakers at dinner parties and small groups. They're an opportunity to just share something about ourselves in order that people will get to know us. It's the same with God. Only God knows himself. If you want to know God, then God's own spirit needs to reveal him to us. And it's therefore here that Paul reaches the conclusion of his argument. Verse 13, this is what we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. The person without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God but considers them foolishness, can't understand them because they are, they are discerned only through the Spirit. If we want to know the things about God, if we want to truly discern the importance of Christ crucified, if we want to avoid hearing the gospel but then simply seeing it as foolishness, if we want to start treasuring Jesus for who he is, the very wisdom of God, it all depends on the Spirit of God breaking into our world through our blindness, working to, con to convict us of the truth of things. That is why two people can sit through a talk about Jesus and one is converted and the other thinks it's stupid. That is why two people in the same family, one child grows up to believe the gospel and the other doesn't. In the end, it's not a personality thing. It's not an upbringing thing. It's not an experience thing. It's not an intelligence thing. God can certainly use and work through some of those things. But in the end, the difference is that the Spirit of God has, has applied it to the heart of one and not the other. All of which may raise some pretty big questions. Why does not God's Spirit reveal the gospel to some people but not others? That's starting to sound like God chooses people. Don't know that sounds fair. Well, look, they might be good questions to bounce around in another context at another time, but that is not at all Paul's agenda in raising these truths here. Paul's agenda is far more pastoral. Because remember why he's saying all this stuff in the first place? This is a church full of factions and divisions. This is a church of people who are impressed by human intellect and cleverness. And they've all got their own pin-up boys. I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas. And Paul is saying, please don't get carried away with that sort of stuff. Do not elevate one person over another simply because they seem smarter or because you resonate more with them. Because bottom line, human wisdom, human cleverness, human uh, eloquence does not actually help us value the things of God. It's God himself who reveals that to us. And whether or not you have a PhD or whether or not you have a HSC or whether the only certificate you've got is to say that you can swim across the pool, it's the same in spiritual terms. We just don't value Jesus if it's not for God's help. 
For the gospel is the hidden wisdom of God revealed by his spirit. That's a great lesson for the Corinthians to have heard. It's a good one for us to hear as well. I mean, at the very least, this should be encouraging us to be all the more people of prayer, don't you think? Knowing that it's the work of God's spirit that leads us to become Christians and to grow as Christians. Let's be praying before we get here on a Sunday. Let's be praying before we head off to our small groups. Because at one level, it actually doesn't matter how clever or entertaining or how, even how clear the Bible talk is or the, or, or, or the Bible discussion might be. We will assess it as foolishness unless God's spirit is working in us. So let's be praying that that'll be happening for ourselves, for each other. Let's be praying for our family and friends who don't yet know Jesus because no one is going to start following Jesus unless God himself, through his spirit, breaks into our spiritual blindness so as to reveal the true worth of the news of Jesus. That's how any of us started following Jesus. And it puts us on a very level playing field. Which is exactly why Paul is telling the Corinthians all about this. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how wealthy you are. It doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter what job you have. It doesn't matter how successful or influential you are in your workplace. It doesn't matter how good you are with words. It doesn't matter how good you are with people. It doesn't matter how awkward you are around people. It doesn't matter how many friends you have on Facebook. We would not be a follower of Jesus if it was not for God's own spirit convicting us of spiritual truths in spiritual ways. And it is the genius of God that that is the case. So no one can boast. Because being saved as we have been through the message of the gospel and not the cleverness of the messenger, as we heard last week, and now this week, being saved as we are not through the cleverness of the listener, but through God's own spirit applying it to our hearts. That just washes equality and unity through a church family. We're all the same. There is no one in this room to be jealous about. There is no one in this room to be resentful over. There is no one in this room to be intimidated by. There is no one in this room to feel superior towards. You can sit next to anyone here at Morning Church. And if you are sitting next to any other Christian, you have both been saved exactly the same way. You can sit next to any other Christian here at Morning Church and you are growing in Christ exactly the same way. God's Spirit, breaking through our spiritual blindness to help us value the things of God. Sort of makes the divisions in Corinth sound pretty stupid, doesn't it? Sort of makes any sort of division within a church seem pretty silly. For we are all exactly in the same boat. We're rebels and we're sinners. And we've been saved by the message of the gospel. 
a hidden wisdom from God, revealed to us through his spirit. I'll pray. Father, thank you for your extraordinary love of us. That in your perfect timing, you led us to hear the wonderful news of Jesus. And that through your spirit, you opened our eyes so that we might truly treasure and accept him. Amen.